On 23 October 1917, the first shots fired by American troops sent to stop the Kaiser's hordes from overrunning Paris during World War I were delivered by the U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One. Two days later, the Fighting First suffered the first American ground combat casualties in the war to end all wars. I'm Oliver North, host of War Stories, the longest-running continuously broadcast military documentary series in history. This podcast is about the Big Red One, the U.S. Army's 1st Infantry Division. Since World War I, a century ago, the Big Red One has been the U.S. Army's go-to force when brave American soldiers with rifles in their hands were needed to confront and defeat our enemies. In this Gripping War Stories podcast, we'll take you from the Western Front of World War I to Operation Iraqi Freedom in the company of those who proudly served in the Big Red One. Listen carefully to the accounts of those who endured mustard gas in World War I's Western Front, our country's brutal initiation to 20th century warfare. You'll also hear from members of the 1st American Unit to fight Hitler's legions in World War II. From North Africa in 1942, Sicily in 1943, and Normandy in 1944, then all the way to VE Day in May of 1945, the 1st Infantry Division was in the thick of the fight. Little more than two decades later, soldiers of the Big Red One were committed to a war my Army brother and I came to know well in the jungles of Vietnam. And in 1991, during Operation Desert Storm, the 1st Infantry Division was chosen to breach Saddam Hussein's defenses and take on the dictator's Republican Guard in the fight to liberate Kuwait. The story of the Big Red One is the history of heroic U.S. Army soldiers and why they say, if you're going to be one, you've got to be a Big Red One. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. Good evening, I'm Oliver North. Welcome to War Stories. Tonight, coming to you from the 1st Division Museum at Cantini Park in Wheaton, Illinois. It was a trench line like this that protected American doughboys of the 1st Infantry Division during World War I. The unit was activated in 1917 as America mobilized to defend Europe's democracies against the Kaiser. And this unit patch with its big red one quickly became a nickname that stuck. 27 years later, Another generation of soldiers wearing the famous patch stormed the beaches of Normandy, then fought their way into the heart of Germany to liberate Europe once again. 
The patch was worn in Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s. And in 1991, the Big Red One helped to liberate Kuwait. Tonight, the story of the Big Red One, the legendary 1st Infantry Division, the longest continuously activated division in the United States Army. They always say if you're going to be one, you've got to be a Big Red One. The Big Red One has got a history that is second to none of any of the other divisions in the United States Army. We make a big deal out of keeping the soldiers aware of where the division has been, what it has done. The legacy is tremendously important. In August 1914, the great empires of Europe unleashed a global carnage then known as the Great War. Britain, France, and Russia allied against Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany and the Ottoman and Austro-Hungarian empires in a bitter struggle to dominate the European continent. Across the Atlantic, the wild American Southwest seemed a world away from the war in old Europe. The U.S. was fighting its own battles with Mexico along our southern border. Pancho Villa had made a, uh, a raid across the border uh, into Columbus, uh, New Mexico. Dr. John Votaw is the executive director of the Cantini First Division Foundation. General John Pershing was looking for Pancho Villa. John Blackjack Pershing was a brigadier general from Missouri. On March 9, 1916, Pancho Villa and 485 followers crossed into the U.S. and killed 18 Americans. President Woodrow Wilson sent Pershing to hunt down the Mexican bandit. Tell us a little bit about Pershing's experience in that Mexican war. He's a good officer. He's competent. He knows his business. Pershing and 14,000 troops, including a young George S. Patton, spent 10 months in Mexico. Though Pancho Villa proved elusive, the U.S. soon uncovered an unexpected but even greater menace in the war with Mexico. Germany was planning a possible invasion of the United States. The foreign minister of Germany, Zimmerman, sends an indiscreet telegram to the Mexicans saying there might be something in it for you when we defeat uh, uh, the United States. You're looking at the 1917 top-secret telegram intercepted by the British from their transatlantic cable lines. The code revealed the words Zimmerman and Mexico. Fully decrypted, the Germans promised Mexico, quote, to reconquer lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. It was the smoking gun. These are a series of provocations that leads the country and President Wilson to, to the brink. The president couldn't ignore the threat. On April 6, 1917, he declared war against Germany. Britain and France were now America's allies in this First World War. General Pershing received new orders from Washington. Pershing is told to uh, put together an expeditionary division for service in France. He goes right back to those regiments that served with him on the Mexican border. In one month, Pershing organized the American Expeditionary Forces. It was the birth of the Big Red One. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. I joined the United States Army in the month of April of 1915. In 1992, in an interview done for the First Division Museum, Arlie Oppenheim remembered joining the Army in Jacksonville, Florida, and leaving for Europe in 1917. On the 14th day of June, we sailed to France. The First Division lands on the uh, 26th of June at Saint-Nazaire. We were put on Provo Guard in Saint-Nazaire. The weapons that they take with them, 
Aside from the pistol and the rifle, most of the other equipment is foreign. Even the helmet that the Doughboys wear is a British 1916 tin pot. As the Americans arrived, brutal trench warfare had laid waste to the British and French armies. The French desperately asked Pershing for American troops. So he does give the 1st Division to the French to be used in the Picardy sector at Cantini at the end of May. On the morning of May the 28th, we attacked the city of Cantini. 4,200 soldiers of the 18th Regiment launched a surprise attack on the German Army, becoming the first U.S. Army unit to see combat in World War I. 20 minutes after we made the attack, we got a counterattack. The Americans captured the town in 45 minutes and took 250 German prisoners. It was the Big Red One's baptism by fire. Max Ottenfeld also spoke to the 1st Division Museum. He hailed from Madison, Wisconsin, and at the young age of 17, joined the division in late 1917. And then I was sent to the 18th Infantry. In that spring of 1918, the Big Red One was waging trench warfare against the Germans. They put over an awful lot of gas. It was so bad we were held up. They suffer a huge mustard gas attack. We lost a lot of men. Fighting in the Big Red One alongside Max in the 18th Regiment was 2nd Battalion, 26th Infantry Regiment. Max remembers their commander. That was Teddy Roosevelt, Jr. The rowdy son of the former American president joined the 1st Division at the start of the Great War. And it was on these battlefields that Teddy Jr. and other young soldiers would emerge as warriors. In particular, George Marshall. Rick Atkinson is the author of An Army at Dawn. He earned a very well-deserved reputation as an extremely capable staff officer. George Patton was a real student of warfare. He recognized that uh, tank warfare was going to be important. Barely five months after their victory at Cantini, the 1st Division fought in and won four major battles. On November 11th, 1918, Kaiser Wilhelm called for a ceasefire. How many casualties has the division taken? A total of 22,668 casualties of which five and a half thousand are killed in action. It was America's brutal initiation into 20th century warfare. They bring the 1st Division back in 1919. They have two parades, one in Washington and one in New York. Many of the young doughboys didn't know they'd soon be fighting the Germans in another war. But already in 1918, the warrior spirit of the fighting first was becoming legend. We put the fear of God into the German army. The fighting first is called to Europe once again to help make the world safe for democracy. When we come back, meet the beloved and controversial general who leads the Big Red One into its first battles against Hitler's legions. What happens to the division between World War I and World War II? The 1st Division is essentially uh, uh, split up, so the tendency is to distribute them to smaller army posts. How many are in the division between the wars? It's still the same size, 28,000 men. It's a square division up until 1939. That year, Europe was once again beating the drums of war. 
Under Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany had annexed Austria and Czechoslovakia. And in September 1939, the German Wehrmacht invaded Poland, and World War II began. Across the Atlantic, an uneasy United States began to prepare its small, scattered army. George Marshall was moving up through the ranks. And in 1939, the highly regarded Marshall was appointed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt as Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. In September 1940, Marshall appointed two new brigadier generals to beef up the U.S. command, the flamboyant Colonel George Patton and a little-known lieutenant colonel from El Paso, Texas, named Terry Allen. Being chosen to uh, become a brigadier general over full colonels was very unusual. General Allen's granddaughter, Consuelo Allen. It caused quite a stir. But General Marshall had seen how my grandfather worked. Like Patton and Marshall, Allen also cut his teeth on the battlefields of World War I, literally. He was shot through the face, a bullet went through um, one side of his jaw and out the other, knocking out all of his molars in the back. Allen is unusual. He's not very smooth. He says what he thinks. He is a man who knows how to fight. And his friendship with Patton went back to their childhood. They were extremely competitive. It was almost like a, a sibling rivalry. Where was the division the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor? Uh, in 1941, they were at Fort Devens, Massachusetts. We got the camp ready for the whole 1st Infantry Division. Charles Hangsterfer hailed from Bridesburg, Pennsylvania after joining the Army, was immediately assigned to the Big Red One. I was a communication officer with the 1st uh, Infantry Division. The division commander was General Terry Allen. In June of 42, Allen was named commander of the Big Red One. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was the assistant division commander. Under General Allen, Teddy Jr. was once again leading the men of the Fighting First in battle. They were real combat soldiers. We felt inspired by them. And it was mutual. He was very emotionally involved with his men. In November of 42, the division left New York Harbor for its first battle against the Axis powers. They were part of Operation Torch, the invasion of North Africa. The forces began to come ashore in Algeria in the early morning hours of November 8, 1942. Despite Franklin Roosevelt's begging the French not to fight, they did. And not far away were Hitler's panzer divisions under the command of Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox. They'd show their strength during a ruthless ambush at the Kazarine Pass. Part of the 26th Infantry and some engineers were being attacked and overrun by the Germans. But the fate of the Big Red One in North Africa would change on March 21, 1943, at a place called El Gatar. The Battle of El Gatar is basically the 10th Panzer Division attacking particularly the American U.S. 1st Infantry Division. It was a surprise attack. We fought for eight hours solid on a hill there at El Qatar. 22-year-old Corporal Walter Ehlers from Manhattan, Kansas, was assigned to the Big Red One in January of 43. The Germans made another attack on the hill that night using the famous flares and you know, all light up everything. In El Qatar there, it would be hard fighting, and even at nighttime. Next morning, we were chasing the Germans up the valley. That was a turning point in Africa. All of a sudden, poof, they, they're gone. Rommel and his elite German panzers were defeated by tenacious American infantrymen. 
It's a significant victory for the first division and for Terry Allen. But politically darker days for the beloved general lay ahead. In 1943, Allen's old rival George Patton was given command of all army forces in North Africa. And Allen inherited another new boss, Patton's assistant commander, the austere and cerebral General Omar Bradley. Bradley's a different kind of fellow. They came from very different backgrounds. My grandfather was raised Catholic. Uh, he didn't mind having a drink. I understand that Bradley was a teetotaler. Bradley didn't hide his dislike for Terry Allen. In the spring of 1943, Terry launches an attack that Bradley has not approved across the Tyne River. And it went badly. He had many men killed. There were far more casualties than my grandfather ever, ever envisioned. I think it took a huge emotional toll on him. Eisenhower and Omar Bradley showed up the next morning. Alan was asleep on the floor of his tent, uh, exhausted, physically and emotionally spent. But he isn't on his best game when he's talking with uh, Eisenhower and Bradley on that occasion. It angered Omar Bradley that the attack had been made in the first place. It was to come back to haunt Terry Allen in Sicily. But the general from El Paso continued to lead his men to victory in the sands of North Africa. Victors get an ovation in captured towns. The Axis oppressors were hated, and the end of their tyrannical rule is a cause for wild rejoicing. And by July 1943, after the victories in the desert, the boys of the Big Red One were now ready to invade Europe on the march to Berlin. And they are blooded. They're full of killers, among other things. Um, it's a formidable force that comes out. By the summer of 1943, Terry Allen had more combat experience than any other general in the U.S. Army. But his conflicts with Patton and Bradley almost cost him his career. That's next on War Stories. From Africa steams the American invasion convoy. In this assault, distinguished by massive power and skill execution. After the North Africa campaign, the division gets tagged to go to Sicily. Right. We didn't have a lot of time for training. Yeah, told us we were going to rain at night. July 10th, 1943, 14,000 combat-hardened GIs of the Big Red One stormed the beaches of Sicily's southern shore. The Hermann Goering Division, which is one of Germany's best divisions, is opposing the 1st Division as they come ashore. We got, uh, the, you know, heard of the screaming memes. About 10 shells come through the air. It was a devastating sound. But the Americans were undeterred. Terry Allen and the Big Red One slugged their way into Hitler's fortress Europe. We moved right through the center of Sicily. There, 40,000 desperate German troops made one last attempt to hold back the Americans. But the Big Red One crushed the remaining Germans in the city of Troyina. 38 days after the invasion, the island was liberated. The first successful invasion of enemy home territory, Italian Sicily. Despite the victory, General Bradley still had reservations about Terry Allen. But back home, Allen and the 1st Division received special recognition. Terry Allen is on the front cover of Time Magazine. Yes, that's interesting. Uh, very unusual for an, a serving division commander uh, to be on the, the cover of Time. The article read, quote, Upon Terry Allen and his 1st Infantry Division, there has fallen a special mark of war and history. 
that week should have been one of the best weeks of his life. Instead, it was one of the worst. He was on the cover August 6th, and on August 9th, he was relieved of the Big Red One. Bradley finally convinced Patton and Eisenhower that Allen should be removed. They also know that they can't just take Allen out, you gotta take Ted Roosevelt too. We were surprised and shocked and disappointed to be relieved because we were an undisciplined bunch of scoundrels why uh, we, we took exception to that. He came back to El Paso and they were having a very large party for him. One of my relatives said that it was, you know, it was a beautiful party and your grandfather walked in and he had tears in his eyes and said, I can't be here. My men are dying. And he thanked his hosts and left. The war in Europe ground on, and the Big Red One had a new commander, General Clarence Hubner, a tough, no-nonsense soldier. He earned the trust of the boys of the Big Red One. We all loved him as much as Terry Allen later on because he was a great soldier, too. He's the fellow that takes them uh, across on Normandy. June 1944, 150,000 Allied soldiers and airborne troops amass on England's southern shores to prepare for Operation Overlord, the invasion of Normandy. Hitler feared this invasion was imminent and desperately fortified his Atlantic defenses in France. As before, the top Allied brass relied on the Big Red One for this, their third amphibious assault in less than two years. D-Day, June 6, 1944. At 0800 hours, 34,000 troops of the Big Red One began the assault on Hitler's Atlantic Wall across Omaha Beach. I think everybody was scared stiff. We could see the guys, you know, bailing out in the boats and things like this. We were saw disaster going on around us. I could see out of the corner of my eye that some of the boats were blowing up. Virtually no landing craft hits the beach where they're where they're supposed to. And the people were bailing out and all this kind of chaos going on around there. I said, you can't stay here, you get killed. The division suffered 1,638 casualties that first day at Omaha Beach. But the Allied troops broke out of the beaches and into the hedgerows of Normandy. In their path lay the final battles with Hitler's armies. The Big Red One raced across Europe to defeat Hitler. And 20 years later, the division mobilized on the other side of the world to fight a different kind of war. This one in the jungles and rice paddies of Vietnam. That's next on War Stories. ashore, the beachheads are consolidated, and the invading forces push inland. But for the boys of the Big Red One, the war with Nazi Germany was far from over. In just three months, the Allied forces liberated France for the second time in less than 30 years. By September of 44, the Big Red One fought all the way to the borders of the Third Reich itself, right into the city of Aachen. The first major German city that falls to the American forces. We took Aachen, then, then from there, we went to a place called Hurken Forest. It was a land full of thick, dense trees. At Hurken, 
The big red one was caught in a savage fight with hidden German armor. It just became a, a long knockdown fight. We couldn't see them, they couldn't see us. The forest became known as the meat grinder. I got wounded at the Hurricane Forest with mortar fragments. It was the worst shelling that I'd ever been in. After two months of ferocious battles in the 50 square mile area, 20,000 GIs had been killed, over 6,000 of them from the Big Red One. It was miserable fighting there. Battered, the combat-weary 1st Division waited to be relieved. Then, out of the forest came a hero they all knew. Terry Allen brings the 104th into the line next to the 1st Division. After Omar Bradley had Allen relieved of command in Sicily, Army General Chief of Staff George Marshall had other ideas. He gave Allen command of a new division, the 104th, known as the Timberwolves. I was his aide de camp at the time. 25-year-old Al Schwartz hailed from General Allen's hometown, El Paso, Texas was right by the general's side when he moved the Timberwolves to relieve the Big Red One. The word got around and guys from the first stopped by to see him and he loved it and so did they. It was a great source of pride for him to be able to relieve the Big Red One with the 104th. After only a month of rest, a fresh hell would envelop the Big Red One. December 17, 1944, Hitler ordered General von Rundstedt and 500,000 German troops to unleash a firestorm on the Allies in Belgium. The bloody Battle of the Bulge had begun. American troops in action on the Western Front, a scene typical of the fighting in the violent climax brought on by the Nazi offensive. At times, victory was less than certain. Over a million men from both sides fought to the death in the month-long battle. But the Allies persevered. And in the early morning hours on a dreary March 16, 1945, the Big Red One crossed the Rhine. Forty-five days later, deep inside his Berlin bunker, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. And on May 8, Germany officially surrendered. The war in Europe was finally over. We were fighting for God and country. The end of the war meant thousands of American troops were shipping back home, including the Timberwolves. A happy General Allen was greeted by his wife and son. The 104th Timberwolf Division is just debarking on its return from overseas. But it would be another decade before the Big Red One could call America home again. They were on occupation duty at the end of World War II for 10 years. In the aftermath of World War II, the Soviet Union and the West became adversaries in a Cold War and the Big Red One became a key component of NATO forces in Europe. 55 is about the time we're pulling the armed forces back into the continental United States. And then 13 years after being deployed on the USNS Upshur, the Big Red One sailed back into New York Harbor. It was a joyous time. The world was at peace, but not for long. In the early 1960s, the Cold War became very hot indeed in an exotic land called Vietnam. Faced with Viet Cong guerrilla attacks and increasing aggression from the communist North Vietnamese, South Vietnam's president, Ngo Dinh Diem, begged for help. The U.S. military and the Big Red One heeded the call. 1965, the war 
begins seriously in Vietnam. Was there any specific training that they were put through to get them ready for it? Oh, of course. There was a lot of counter-guerrilla operations because they had been getting uh, reports back from Vietnam. The first troops of the Big Red One landed in Camran Bay in July. By the 1st of November, 65, the entire division, almost 18,000 men, was operational in South Vietnam. The division was spread out over five combat bases. The 3rd Brigade was sent to a town called Lai Ki, 40 miles north of Saigon. I had a good view of Lai Ki going in. It was a lovely, and I said, God, this is a beautiful place. Retired Brigadier General James Shelton grew up in the zinc mining town of Franklin, New Jersey. Even as a young boy, he dreamed of becoming a soldier. I'd heard so many stories from old soldiers from World War II about the great Terry Allen. And I said, boy, this guy must have been one hell of a soldier. And sure enough, I go to Vietnam and I end up to the Big Red One. My dad had been in the Army during World War II. I thought it was kind of exciting, the stuff he did. As a young boy growing up in New Hampshire, Clark Welsh had little doubt about his future calling. I joined the Army two or three days after I graduated. I just wanted to be a soldier. Welsh trained as a Special Forces Green Beret. And like Shelton, when his country called, he volunteered for duty in Vietnam. I spent about six months getting ready to go to Special Forces, and that's what I thought I was going to do when I arrived there in 66. But instead, he was assigned to the 1st Infantry Division. And I flew to Lai K and was told I would be in the 2nd of the 28th Infantry Battalion. It was the Black Lions, the 2nd Battalion, 28th Infantry. I was not happy about going to the 1st Infantry Division or any infantry division. It would take only one day for Welsh to change his mind. After his reconnaissance platoon came under enemy fire in Vietnam, bonds between soldiers were forged quickly. So within one or two days of my arrival at the 2nd of the 28th, uh, I was in it. There was absolutely no doubt that was my platoon. I was home. At Lai then Major James Shelton met a 38-year-old lieutenant colonel whose last name was Allen. They introduced him to me as Terry. So that night, and I said, hey, you're not in relation to General Terry Allen, are you? He said, yeah, I'm his son. I said, what? You're, you're Terry Allen's son? The son of the World War II general was now the commander of the 2nd Battalion, 28th Infantry, the Black Lions, part of the Big Red One. I don't think it ever occurred to my father to do anything but be in the army. It was the family business. He was a professional. I knew he would take care of me. And in the fog of war, this band of brothers in the 28th Infantry would soon be tested in a dense Vietnamese jungle. What they thought was going to happen wasn't necessarily what happened. In the jungles of Vietnam, the black lions of the fighting first battle against North Vietnamese Army regulars and Viet Cong guerrillas. That's next on War Stories. By October 1967, the Big Red One had been in Vietnam for over two years. And they'd been facing regular engagements with the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. And just north of Saigon, the 2nd Battalion, 28th Infantry, the Black Lions, including Jim Shelton and Clark Welsh, were conducting regular search and destroy missions. We did uh, seals on the village, 
try to catch VC in the village, stuff like that. Lieutenant Colonel Terry Allen Jr. was the battalion commander. He was my boss, but he was also my friend. If we weren't talking right about the operation, I'd be talking about his old man or about things in general. But Shelton's days with the 28th Infantry were numbered. On 5 October 1967, Lieutenant Colonel Allen gave Shelton the news. Terry comes up to me and he said, Jim, you've been selected to be the uh, operations officer, uh, uh, Division G3, and you're to pack your bag and get on his chopper now. As Shelton left for division headquarters, he had no way of knowing that in just two weeks, the Black Lions would face an enemy, outnumbering them 10 to 1. October 1967, a major engagement. The battle at Ang Tan on the 17th of October was a, uh, a classic fight. Clark Welch, who was commanding one of the companies in the second of the 28th uh, Black Lions, was out the day before. I knew we had found a large group of the enemy. The holes that we were looking at were maintained well. There was a lot of rice. I knew there were hundreds of them. That evening, Terry Allen Jr. issued orders for the next day's operation. The Black Lions were to march directly into the heart of the enemy bastion, first scouted by Welch. Welch was then the 27-year-old commander of Delta Company. He thought an envelopment of the enemy flank would work. He was shocked to learn that Allen wanted a frontal assault. And it, uh, it, it dumbfounded me. I've been told, you know, I said, that's a stupid plan or something. I don't remember that. I remember, though, saying, what? Huh? My father, I think, felt that his judgment was being called into question. And he held fast to the decision that he had made. And he said, well, we'll have Alpha lead. We're going to sneak up on him. It's going to be a great day for the Black Lions. Ever the soldier, an uneasy Welsh, went back to brief the men of his company on the operation. So I was generally saying, you did a wonderful job today. We're going to go back in there tomorrow. We left the base camp at 8 o'clock in the morning, Alpha Company leading, Delta Company trailing. And my thought is, boy, it's going to happen now, it's going to happen now, it's going to happen now. And then at 10 o'clock, from the front, from the right, and from the treetops, just a tremendous burst of fire. Bullets coming through, bullets coming down from up above. They were almost immediately mowed down. Alpha Company was gone. What I saw was a line of bodies on the ground. I brought back a couple of guys from Alpha Company, just dragged them back. They were dead, I'm not sure. Back at the division headquarters in Lykee, Jim Shelton began receiving disturbing reports from the scene. We get a report that Terry Allen's dead. And then another man gets hit, and then another man, and you just, God, wait, when is this going to stop? But the enemy fire was unabated. I can't think of anything we could have done that would have allowed us to survive. It was already too late. It was 140 guys against 1,400 guys. 57 American soldiers lost their lives that day. 59 were wounded and two are still missing. 102 enemy troops also died. My understanding is my father was killed about an hour into the battle. 22 years after World War II, Terry Allen Sr. and his family received the news in El Paso. He took the news as badly as he could. And after his funeral, we went to General Allen's house. General Allen said, practically in tears, let there be no tears in this house. This is the house of an infantryman. Terry Allen posthumously is, receives the Distinguished Service Cross. 
Clark Welch got a Distinguished Service Cross many, many, many years after the fact. In his book, The Beast Was Out There, General Shelton searched for answers about what went wrong that day for the Black Lions and Terry Allen Jr. He got his unit way in over his head. He bears the responsibility for that. I don't know that my father, if he had survived the battle, could have lived with what happened that day. That being said, I know that my father being my grandfather's son would have been so proud of the men and what they did that day. Coming up, the Big Red One continues its legacy of valor in a different terrain, the deserts of Iraq, fighting Saddam Hussein's Republican guards, round one of the Persian Gulf War. August 6, 1990, Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein shocked the world when his army, the fourth largest in the world, invaded neighboring Kuwait. President George H.W. Bush and then Secretary of Defense Richard Cheney forged an international coalition to liberate Kuwait. Again, the Big Red One was called to the task. The first Gulf War. Right. First Infantry Division's got a major role. Midway through the buildup, they get the deployment orders. General Tom Rain, then Major General Rain, was the division commander. At that time, no one in that division, to include me, had a clue of what was about to go down. Tom Rain was born in Winfield, Louisiana in 1941 and joined the Army in 1963. Like many soldiers of his generation, he was introduced to battle in the jungles of Vietnam. That's where I made my commitment to the force. When the Iraqi army invades Kuwait, where were you? I was a CG of the 1st Infantry Division at Fort Riley, Kansas. When did you get the alert that you were going to go into the Persian Gulf? November the 7th. President Bush announced that the U.S. would double the number of American troops committed to Saudi Arabia. The final buildup for Operation Desert Storm the liberation of Kuwait was underway. How many troops is, does the division have at that point? We had about 13,000 at Fort Riley. The Big Red One prepared for war. The first division is part of the left hook. General Schwarzkopf is persuaded is the, is the right, right approach to unhinging the, uh, the Iraqi defenses. The commander of coalition forces was Norman Schwarzkopf, known as Storm and Norman. Can you describe the, the planning for that and, and sitting down with General Schwarzkopf and his staff? He briefed us conceptually on what his plan was. You concentrate down into a small area, the power of the 1st Division, on the sorriest Iraqi division you've ever met, bring him to total and complete annihilation, and then continue the attack. While Central Command laid out strategy and tactics, the Big Red One continued their deployment to Saudi Arabia. We started getting boots on the ground effectively around Christmas time of 1990. We were joined by the 2nd Armored Forward out of Germany, which brought the division to about 17,000 at, at the time we attacked into Iraq. 0238 hours, 17 January 1991. American Apache gunships opened fire on Iraqi forces in southern Iraq. Operation Desert Storm had begun. Within minutes, Tomahawk cruise missiles launched from the battleships Missouri and Wisconsin began to hit targets deep inside Iraq. 
For almost five weeks, coalition forces pounded Iraq from the air. Impact point is steady. Okay, nice and easy on the turn. Stand by for designate. On the ground, five divisions, including the big red one, stood ready for the final invasion. Just as at Normandy 45 years earlier, the fighting first was chosen to breach the enemy defenses. At dawn on February 24th, a ferocious barrage was unleashed at Iraqi defenses. I'm attacking with four battalions of tanks, with 58 tanks in each battalion. On the 26th, the Iraqi division is on the receiving end. And he who surrendered was free to walk out. He who chose to fire back, shame on it. We went through them really fast and completely defeated them. In their path stood Saddam Hussein's elite Republican Guard. On the night of the 26th of February, we will take the war to the Republican Guard. I hit a regiment, the 3rd Armored hit a regiment. That division of Republican Guard ceased to exist. The Big Red One drove a deep left hook into southern Iraq, all the way to the Baghdad to Basra Highway, cutting off Saddam's Republican Guard. Then General Rehm received new orders from Schwarzkopf. Seize Saf One for the conduct of the ceasefire talks. And we have a marvelous sight. Welcome to Iraq, courtesy of the Big Red One. On March 1st, just five days after the ground war began, General Schwarzkopf negotiated a ceasefire with the Iraqi military. Gulf War I was over. 148 American soldiers had been killed in combat, 27 of them from the 1st Infantry Division. People have got to remember that the success of the 1st Infantry Division in Desert Storm was the individual people from the rifleman to the POL truck driver, the non-commissioned officers, the junior officers, and all. That's what made that division powerful. They made it all happen. More war stories about the Big Red One when we return. Big Red One remains vitally important to our nation's defense. In November 1996, the division arrived in Bosnia to maintain peace in the Balkans. And though the entire division wasn't deployed to the Middle East for Operation Iraqi Freedom, the patch was indeed worn in the campaign to liberate Iraq. Over in uh, northern Iraq, there's about a tank company up there, and they're all wearing the Big Red One. And the division's motto says it all. No mission too difficult. No sacrifice too great. Duty first. General Terry Allen once said that a soldier doesn't fight to save suffering humanity. He fights to prove his units the best in the army. That's at the core of this great unit's heritage. It was built by the hundreds of thousands of soldiers who have worn this division patch on their shoulders in combat. Their dedication, commitment to one another, and valor have given the Big Red One a legacy of honor. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.